Jesus said to his disciples in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, beginning at verse 6. He said to the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip then said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And even greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me. Anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that apart from your Holy Spirit this morning, revealing yourself to us through the word, through the prayers, through the songs, that we cannot worship you. I cannot preach a single word if you do not do a work here this morning. No one here can hear you speak unless you do a work this morning. And so we ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us and that you would indeed have your Holy Spirit give us ears to hear and eyes to see you this morning. We want to know you. We want to know Christ. We want to know the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. We want to worship you during this time. We want to know that it is well with our souls, not because of our merit, because of the merit of Christ, not because of the works that you are doing through us or will do, but because of the great work of Jesus Christ. So we ask, Father, that you would enable us, help us, cause us to be at peace this morning in the depth of our souls for no other reason other than that we know you and you know us, and we are truly satisfied in that. I pray, Father, that you would help me to bring this word to life, your word, and that you would give my brothers and sisters ears to hear it. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning, beloved. If you have a Bible, please open up to John 14. I got new glasses, and the print's still really small. I thought it would help, and it's just still not helping, so God is good. (laughs) Uh, This passage is a... uh, um, we're in this incredible strain of chapters, and there are verses that we want to look at and meditate on and go back to again and again, because Christ is he's trying to give words of encouragement to his disciples who are terrified, and they should be terrified. They're, not conf- they're confused, and that's why they're, uh, they're at odds with their, their souls right now. The title of the sermon is Knowing God, and if you have not read J.R. Packer's Knowing God, I recommend you do so. It is a, a classic in, uh, in evangelical reform circles. I have a, some great quotes here that I want to share with you as well. He said, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing God. 
We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing God, the God whose world it is and who runs it. Imagine if you were to go to India and find a man that has lived his entire life, say he's in his mid-50s or his late 60s, and and he's lived in a rural village his whole life, and you were to go there and you were to pick him up and you were to put him on an airplane and you were to fly him back to the United States and you were to drop him in downtown San Jose and leave him completely alone. Yeah, he would be confused minimally. He would be overwhelmed with anxiety, likely frightened, and likely unable, at least initially, to get by, to live. We find the disciples here in a very similar situation. Christ has announced that he's going to leave, and this new life that they have been taught, this new mission that they've been called to, they now think they're going to have to do it alone, without Jesus. And so they're in a form of crisis themselves. For three years, he was with his disciples, teaching, ministering to, loving, showing them the Father. And now we know, this is the Thursday night of of the Passover week. We know that he's already told them he's going to leave. We know that Judas has already left their company and has set in motion the crucifixion and the death and the burial of the Savior. And so within 24 hours, we're going to see all that Jesus had declared and prophesied to coming to pass. And he tells them, i got to go away for a little while, and I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come back. And then he says, I'm going to bring you to myself. I'm going to take you to myself that you may be where I am also. And these are great promises, but they're not having the right effect. He said, look at verse 1 and 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Your destination is going to be in my Father's house. It's going to be with me. We're going to be together. But they're not buying it. They're still in a state of panic. And so what does he do? He does the very thing that we need to hear him do. And he says, look closer at me. He says, look closer at me. And so he redirects his focus from the Father's house and his departure and his coming again. He says, do you know who I am? Because if they could get that, if they could really understand who this Christ is, then there could be peace in their troubled hearts. And by God's grace, if we... If God would be so gracious this morning to show us that, if we can see Christ and truly know him, then we can sing all is well with our souls. That we can hear Christ say to us, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, and we will say amen and not be so troubled. So let us try to do that this morning by God's grace and the Holy Spirit. All right? I want to look at one, how we can know God in Jesus Number two, how we can serve God in Jesus. And number three, how we can ask God in Jesus. To know Him, to serve Him, and to ask God. All these things in Christ. Number one, knowing God in Jesus. J.I. Packer was right when he said, The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. In other words, knowing God is essential to life is essential to living life. And and we know it's essential to eternal life. Jesus understood this as well. Look at verse 7. He said to his disciples, if you had known me, pointing to himself, if you had known me these past three years, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, he's saying there's no need for you to panic, men. Everything is okay. 
because you know me. And if you know me, you know my Father. And therefore, when I leave this place, it doesn't have to be this strange, mad, painful endeavor that you're going to go through. My departure is not going to leave you in a state of chaos. He reminds them, as he wants to remind us, if you know Jesus Christ, you know the Father. Did you hear that? If you know Jesus Christ, the person of Christ as revealed in sacred scripture, if you know him as your Lord and your Savior, as the Messiah in your life, as your King, then you know God the Father. There's no question about that. The disciples didn't get it. We still don't get it. He's saying, you should know me because my words are my Father's words. My works are my Father's works. His entire life, his sinless life, was that reflected in the Father. All that he did glorified and magnified and pointed us, pointed us to, to God the Father. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. We're going to look more at this next week. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. You can have an intimacy with me and the Father and the Holy Spirit like you've never, ever had. I mean, they're falling apart because he's thinking they're abandoning him. Far from it. He's going to go and he's going to send the Holy Spirit so they can, unlike any time during that three-year ministry with Jesus, know him in a most intimate and personal way, far beyond anything they'd ever experienced, because the Holy Spirit would reside in them, God, in man. Wasn't sufficient yet. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Show us the Father, and that's enough. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Those words, by the way, are, were stinging words to the Lord. When Philip said that, they were hurtful. I mean, Christ, Christ had spent three years with Philip. Three years he had revealed himself in total. Three years he had shared with the disciples incredible inter-Trinitarian secrets. Things that no man had known up to this point in time. Christ had laid himself out for the disciples. And then Philip says, show us the Father and it's enough. Make the Father known to us and we'll be satisfied. Because we're not satisfied with you, Jesus. We're not satisfied with you. Now, Philip is asking for an Old Testament theophany, an appearance of God. If that's what Philip is asking for, then his question is truly foolish. Because he thinks if he can get a glimpse of the Father, that somehow the rest of his life will work itself out. If he can just see God in some other capacity other than Christ, that his troubled heart will be settled. But if Philip wants to see the Father, and I I think this is the case, this is my take on it. If he wants to see the Father like Moses wanted to see the face of God, remember, he says, show me your face. Why? Because that was a, a Hebrew idiom. If I can see your face, I can know you. You can know me and I can know you. I can be in this relationship with you. If that's what he's asking, then we say amen, because that's what we want too. We want to see God, and we want to know God. In fact, if that's what he's asking, he's only affirming the very wisdom that God conveyed through the prophet Jeremiah centuries earlier. Jeremiah 9.23, God said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, and here's the key verse, verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That's it. That we know God. Packer again said, there is no peace like the peace 
of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor in them in life, through death, and on forever. To know God now, to know God as we enter the grave, and to know God, be known by God, to be in relationship with God forever and ever. That brings peace to the, to the troubled mind and the heart that cannot be stilled. And so if Philip is asking for this, we would say amen to it, but it, it simultaneously is a grievous statement. Why? Look what he's saying here. He's saying, if you show me the Father, if you just give me some vision, Jesus, then I'm going to be okay. And then Jesus said, look at verse 9 again, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, past tense, has seen the Father. And then he says, how can you say, Philip, show us the Father? And there's, there's a, an emphasis in the Greek. How can you say that? Three years I've been with you. How can you say, show me the Father? There's definitely hurt in his voice. And there always is, isn't there? When we're not well known by those that we think love us. I mean, Jesus had loved them and he had served them and he had ministered to them and he had sacrificed them and he was going to ultimately sacrifice for them. And they, just still, they still don't know him. How painful that is, isn't it, my beloved? People that you think know you best and love you most, you find out they don't know you at all. Hard to love someone you do not know. Hard to love. And on this night, I mean, this, this night, this was the worst night in human history. This was the worst night of Jesus' life. This was the night he was going to be betrayed into the hands of his accusers and be put to death. And he hears Philip say to him, in essence, I love you, Lord, but I do not know you. He likely heard Philip say to him, because they all chimed in according to the Gospel of Mark, I will die for you, Lord, but you're still an enigma to me. Instead of Christ reveling in his hurt, he is so other-centered that here on this night, what does he do? He presses harder for them to hear him. He presses harder for them to know him. And so what does he do? He presses the Trinity again. Look at verse 10. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? These are emphatic statements. Do you not believe that? The words that I said to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. He says, I'm not just saying this. The Father has given me these words to say to you. God the Father is communicating these things. Verse 7, to know me is to know the Father. Verse 9, to see me is to see the Father. Verse 10, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. He repeats it in verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Do you see? He cannot overstate this. They still didn't get it. They still did not know who Jesus is. The emphasis cannot be overstated. That we have three eternally distinct persons in the holy triune Godhead. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is saying, you get the difference, but you don't see the unity. There's such a radical unity that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past have always been one. That's why we agree with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 and 6, that we believe in one God, not three They've shared this intimacy. 
they share this intimacy and will forever. And therefore, Jesus can say to Philip, and, and he's saying this in its most fundamental sense, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. If you love me, you love the Father. And he means it. His words, the Father's words. His works, the Father's works. Look at the latter part of verse 10. He said, the Father who dwells in me does his works. And we already saw back in John 10, 25, Jesus said, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, witness about him being who? Being God, one with God. I believe it's the reason, one of the reasons anyway, that Jesus could say in verse 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through me. You can't know God the Father unless you know Jesus. You can't see the Father unless you see Jesus. And you can't follow God into heaven unless you follow His Son, Jesus Christ. This was the means by which God the Father says, you will come back to me. It is Christ. And we saw last week, it is only Christ. Christ is the means by which we truly know God the Father. He is the perfect revelation. Is he not? Colossians 1, 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2, 9, for in Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1, 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. And listen to this, the exact representation of His being. Do you understand how foolish Philip's statement was? If you say, I believe in God, but I do not believe in Jesus, you do not know God. If you say, I worship God, but I reject Jesus as Savior, you are worshiping a false God, a dead God, an idol. If you know God, the Father, then you know God, the Son. And we can add on, you know God, the Holy Spirit. And if you know them, if you know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you have present tense, eternal life. We're going to see this in a few weeks. John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you, he has sent. That's it. It's such glorious truth for us. Look at verse 11. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of my works themselves. He said, Listen, believe my words, believe my works, but whatever you do, don't miss this. You can't miss this and be well with your soul. You can't miss the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Father are one. Because if you miss Christ, you miss the Father, you miss heaven, you miss eternity, and it is not well with your soul. All right, so do we have that point? We must first see that in order to know God the Father, you must know Jesus Christ the Son. And if you know Jesus Christ the Son, then you do emphatically, intimately, and relationally know God the Father. That means you won't live your life, this life of disappointment and unpleasant business, as Packer said. There'll be direction, there'll be end, there'll be aim, there'll be work to do because you know God and God knows you. Let's turn to our next point, serving God and Jesus. Look at verse 12. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, 
and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. This verse has caused much trouble in the church. We'll talk about it just a bit, but I want you to understand the context in which Christ is talking. The disciples are thinking to themselves, he has spent three years teaching us to do this mission and now he's leaving and we're going to have to do this ourselves? I mean, it's bad enough. I want you to think about this for a minute, saints. It's bad enough. They've spent three glorious years walking, talking, eating, and sleeping with God. Amazing thought. Three years, daily communion with God in the flesh, and now he's going to be ripped from them. He's going to be tried, persecuted, and murdered. It's unimaginable to me. I think we're not going to be able to get along without you. And that would be a true statement. They didn't know the Holy Spirit was coming. Three years, and now he's going to be taken away. And they're thinking, how, how are we going to establish this church that you've talked about? And how are the gates of hell not going to prevail against it if you're not here? Verse 12 should have been comforting words for their anxious hearts. Look at it again. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Far from the momentum stopping when Christ leaves, he's saying, it's only going to get better. More power, more movement, greater kingdom work getting done. And that greater work, the gospel going out, growing in degree and magnitude. And he says, because whoever truly believes shall do these works that he has done and is doing. And at its most simple level, we can understand that you have one man, Jesus Christ, is now through the gospel of grace, going to save many, and the Holy Spirit will dwell within them, and now you have one man, now you have an army, an entire church that spreads throughout human history, bringing the gospel to the lost. So many use this verse to argue that the miracles of Jesus Christ and the apostles continued all throughout human history and should be here today. And if you are a believer, you should be exercising them. And if you're not exercising them, the implication being, not so subtle, you're not a believer. That is heretical on many levels and for many reasons other than the one I will give you. What Jesus says here, he's not talking about the casting out of demons or the raising of people from the dead or the controlling of natural elements. He's not talking about that. He is not talking about these signs and wonders that accompanied the apostolic age. They were given to the apostolic age. They were given to that time to substantiate the gospel and to substantiate the word of God that was going to be written by their hands. In fact, even the apostle identifies the signs and the wonders and the miracles as a special anointing. When he's talking to the church at Corinth, he's saying it's not going to be for all believers. To the church at Corinth, substantiating his own apostleship. This is what Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Memorize that or write it down. In other words, the signs and wonders that Christ exercised were not to be for all believers, but for the apostles, the New Testament church. They were not to carry on. So then, what is Jesus talking about when he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do? Greater works. We know that the works the apostles gauged in, even those were not greater than Jesus. Even they were not greater. 
similar in many ways, but not greater. So Jesus wasn't talking about, you know, here's his work and you're going to do so much more. It's going to be so much better than mine. Talking about that. Secondly, he says, whoever believes will do the work I do. And that is a universal declaration. That means everyone who believes, every person saved by grace will do the works of Jesus Christ. And he said, even more so, even greater than the work that I did and am doing. So we have to stop and go, what what works is he talking about? If it's not these supernatural signs and wonders, and it's not relegated to the apostles only, or he would have designated the apostles. If he says all believers, what works is he talking about? What work could be greater than raising someone from the dead? Raising someone from the dead. The greater work is the work of the church. And it is infinitely greater than any of the physical signs and wonders and miracles that Jesus accomplished during his earthly ministry. It is the very gospel of grace. It is the good news that the Holy Spirit takes and moves out the church, moves us to places where they've never heard. And by his grace, he brings the gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and he saves many. The greater work is the Great Commission is to go into all the nations and to make disciples of God. The greater work is going to every tribe and every tongue and every nation and telling them about Jesus, that there can be life, that there can be a means by which we don't die in our sins. This greater work has been given to us, and greater it is in every way. Our Lord's works and the apostles' works in the New Testament church to substantiate the word of God. They were physical. We saw that, right? How much greater if Jesus touched a man's eyes and that man was able to see? How much greater when you share the gospel of grace with someone and they're able to see things spiritually for the first time? I'm not talking about weird things like demons and angels. I'm talking about seeing spiritual things, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and Christ as Savior. They can see these things for the first time, and then what? And believe. I mean, how much more glorious than when Christ touched a man's ears and made that man hear than you to go and share the gospel, and God touched that man's ears or that woman's ears, and they hear for the first time of hope, of salvation in the name of Christ, and they believe. And more glorious than the raising of Lazarus. And we looked at that. How glorious that miracle was. Lazarus died again. How glorious that you can take the gospel to those who are dead. And they're dead if they don't know Christ. And you can bring the gospel. And the Holy Spirit will take your words and these truths. And make that person alive. And once alive they will never die. These works are so much greater. I would say we can't even compare them. This work that we've been called to, the work the church has been called to, the greater works of the gospel itself. And all this we know. Look at verse 12 again. It's made possible because this great work that we're supposed to do, it's made possible because Jesus says, I'm going to go back to my Father. Look at the latter part of verse 12. And greater works than these he will do, that's the believer, because, here's the reason why, because I'm going to the Father. And so, in other words, they're in crisis mode because Jesus is leaving, and he says, you don't get it. My leaving is going to empower you. My leaving is going to magnify this ministry. You think we've done some great things thus far? You haven't seen anything yet. It's when Christ goes back to the Father, 
he does a couple fundamental things. One, he says, I'm going to go back through the cross. He doesn't just ascend. He doesn't leave Thursday night, Passover, and ascend into heaven. He goes to Calvary, and he goes to the cross. And because he does that, because he dies upon the cross through his death and resurrection, we know that he conquers sin and he conquers death for all who would be saved. He becomes the perfect sacrifice, dying in our place. How glorious is that? He pays for our sins and he satisfies the holy wrath of a holy God. And we know that no one, no one could be saved if Christ did not go to the cross. So there'd be no gospel to preach. There'd be no power in the gospel. What would you say? There's no Savior. That's no hope. And so by leaving through the cross, he, he saves and he empowers. But something else happens and this is amazing, and like I said, we'll look at this more next week. By going to the Father, He sends the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is not bound, incarnate, in human form like Jesus. The Holy Spirit can come and dwell in the heart of every believer. I mean, what a difference. That's why Christ is so adamant. Remember when he's talking to Martha, you've got to let me go, woman. i got to go because when I leave, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's going to come and dwell inside of you. And then you, church, will go out and do a far greater work. By the power of the Holy Spirit, taking the gospel of grace, you will bring the gospel to the ends of the earth and millions will hear and believe. What a great work. There isn't anything that Christ did in his earthly ministry other than saving souls, which he did, that compares to this work of the church that he gives us. And if understood correctly in verse 12, <clears throat> these should have been such encouraging words for them. I mean, he's saying the power that's going to come upon you is going to be so much greater than you've known these past three years with me here. You know, when I read these are hard verses for me because when I read the miracles of Christ not being raised in the church, so I wasn't saturated in Sunday school with them. They were new to me at 20. And when I read them, I thought, this is unbelievable. If this is true, this is incredible. I mean, this man, he goes up and he, he says to a, a man, hear and the man hears, or the paralytic in chapter 5, walk and the man walks. Or then he talks to Jairus' daughter and, and, the, and the, well, she rises from the dead. These are incredible things. They're unfathomable to me emotionally, intellectually. I'm overwhelmed by them. And I'm thankful for that. I want to be rightly blown away by the power of Jesus Christ displayed here on earth. But how much more should we be blown away, utterly astonished by the fact that through the gospel of grace, someone who is spiritually dead and bound for hell can be made alive and live forever? gospel goes but for many of you and you heard and you repented and you believed and you were made alive that's better than any physical miracle this is the greater work that Christ calls us to now saints if that's true if you had the power today the apostolic power of the first century church and let's say that you had the power to touch someone's eyes and give them their sight back, a blind man. Or you could make someone paralyzed walk. Or maybe someone who is dying of cancer, or maybe they die of cancer, and you bring them back to life. If you had that power, I dare say you'd be out exercising it. 
I probably would argue you'd be looking for blind people and lame people and deaf people say, come here, I have a gift for you. And maybe some of us would do it for the wrong reasons, just like the disciples in Luke chapter 10. Remember, they, they went out and they, they were casting out demons and they were healing the sick and they come back and, and they're rejoicing. You know, hey, Jesus, we're even casting out demons in your name. Remember what the Lord said? Jesus rebuked them. He said, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, in the book of life. But we would still go out for good reasons or bad reasons. If you had this power, you would do it either way. So I have a single question. If the work of the gospel is so much greater, then why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we doing it? Why aren't we more faithful to this great gospel work of the church taking the truth and the hope of Jesus Christ to the lost, to the deaf and to the blind and to the lame? Why? There's so many answers for this. I don't have time, but I'll give you a couple. I think we're afraid. I mean, deep down, I think we're just afraid. We're afraid that if we talk about this Christ who is the rock of offense, they'll be offended and they won't respond to us well and they won't like us as much and we'll lose friends, we'll lose colleagues, we'll lose family members and we're afraid. Now, I'll give you this. Unlike the blind and the deaf and the lame of our Lord's day, those that we go to, they don't even know they're blind. So you say, I want to give you sight. And say, I'm not blind. I want to help you here. I can hear just fine. I want to help you walk. So my walk is, my walk's good. So we're dealing with a population that rejects their infirmities. But I would argue that there's a much deeper problem, which will take us to our last point. I believe that we do not take this great power, the work of the gospel, out because we lack faith. We lack faith. We do not trust in the holy God to exercise this power through us to accomplish these things in the name of Christ to his own glory. Let's go to our last point and see if we can understand <clears throat> this problem and maybe overcome it. Three, asking God in Jesus. If for the disciples, knowing Christ meant knowing God the Father, and if for the disciples, this is true, that Jesus said that you're going to do greater works than I have done and am doing. Notice that it's also in the present tense. Christ is still doing all this work. If that did not bring them comfort, then verses 13 and 14 would have to be a place where unless their hearts are so dark and so troubled they don't hear what he's saying, they would want to hear what he's saying because what he says is so over the top in verses 13 and 14. Again, abused. We'll talk about that a bit. Look at verse 13. And maybe he saw it in their eyes. Maybe they're just still looking at him like, don't leave. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he repeats in verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's over the top. I mean, that's extreme language. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do this. If you ask anything in my name, I will do that. This is not just any man. Remember, this is Jesus Christ. He is the creator of the universe. He is the second person of the holy triune God. He is the Son of God. And he says, you ask anything in my name, and I will make sure personally that it comes to pass. What a word of encouragement for them. I'm sure they had lots of things to ask, lots of things they wanted to say. 
and, and, I, and I know that this pertains to verse 12 in the context of our passage. You know, as they're thinking to themselves, this great work that we're supposed to do to take the gospel lost, that he had taught them clearly that God must save, God must change hearts. And so it certainly applies to the gospel going out that we too, when we contemplate not being afraid and going to our brothers and sisters, I'm talking bio- biological brothers and sisters, parents, co-workers, and sharing the gospel, that God has the power to save them, and that we ought to be asking in prayer, fervent prayer, for their souls. We ought to be praying before we share the gospel. We ought to be praying while we're sharing the gospel. We ought to pray after we share the gospel with them. Ask these things of God. I think that oftentimes much of our evangelism fails because we don't ask. I mean, we don't. We go out on our own power and our own flesh, and we ask, and we proclaim, and we declare, and nothing happens, but we don't pray. Jesus is saying, ask me. Ask my Father. But we can't limit this to the gospel and evangelism. Look again at some of these terms. He says, whatever you ask, and then anything you ask in my name, these are broad, all-encompassing, whole life statements. And that means, my beloved, that anything you ask God the Father in the name of Christ, Christ is saying, I I will do that. Meeting your physical needs. And and we have them, right? We have have physical needs of, of, of just being able to feed ourselves or to keep a roof over our heads, or, or the physical needs of being sick. God's saying, ask. We have many emotional needs. I mean, many of us are lonely. We're lonely. We don't have friends, and we don't have family. God says, ask me. And we all have such desperate spiritual needs, don't we? I mean, daily, we need to come before God and confess our sins. Daily, we need to be fed by Him. And so we have all these needs, and God's saying, come to me. And ask, because he is such a good father. Jesus is making it clear to his disciples, and I pray to us this morning, that this fundamental means of grace that will bridge the gap of the physical Christ is prayer. Right? He's leaving, but he's saying, it doesn't mean we can't talk. He said, I want you to still pray to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he says, it's going to come through me. He's the intercessor. He intercedes, right? And so whenever you're praying to God the Father, Christ is hearing those prayers. He's taking those prayers and bringing them before the Father. In other words, he says, you're going to stay here. I'm going to go to heaven. And here's our mode, our line of communication. Let's talk. I mean, let's talk. You ask anything, whatever you want. Unlimited resources from his Father. Unlimited resources. Paul made this clear to the church in Philippi 419. He says, God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. He'll meet them all. How many of you do not believe that? You say, Oh, Pastor, I prayed things and did not come to pass. Those are verses that I am highly suspect of. I asked. And he did not do. What's the problem with that? This is not an unlimited whatever you ask, whatever you want. I mean, that would be horrible, wouldn't it not? If God actually said yes to all your prayers. For those of you who have walked with the Lord long enough, you prayed things in retrospect. Ooh, I'm glad he said no to that one. Right? 
I mean, that was a bullet that was dodged, but it wasn't. God just said, no, that will not kill you. If we, say, if we take this in a hard, wooden, literal sense, he said, whatever I ask, in Jesus' name, it will come to pass. You've just made God, the Father, the Creator, a cosmic genie, and you've put yourself upon the throne. Right? How's that worked out so far in human history? We've been riding that horse for some time. It doesn't ride all so well. We've made a mess of things. We know that. Jesus doing anything we ask, notice twice he says what? In his name. In his name. Now, we're so good at religion that we go, oh, okay, I got it. It's a formula. He's talking code. So it's not whatever or anything. It has to be whatever or anything that I attach his name to. And, and this is very popular, by the way, even in evangelical circles, where we pray something, and at the end we say what? In Jesus' name, there's the stamp, Lord. It's got to come. In Jesus' name, we know that's not the case. We know that's not what it means. To ask for something in Jesus' name, at its most fundamental level, listen, it means that you're asking in faith and from the heart. It's a faithful request. And Jesus will answer that every time. Every single time. If it falls into a few of His Sovereign categories, and these are important. One, you ask in accordance with God's will and the purposes of his kingdom. So whatever you ask in the name of Jesus that is in accordance with God's will, it will take place. And that's kind of a glorious thing. That means when you ask something and God says no, it's not in his will, and that's a good thing. You don't want anything outside of God's will, even Christ when he was praying for the cup to pass, he said, what? He said, let your will be done. I, I don't want the cross. I want your will first because it's better. And so that means, saints, listen, anything you ask in the name of Christ, in faith, that is in accordance with his will will come to pass. It's glorious. There's something else. Secondly, to ask something in Jesus' name means that you will ask in his merit, not your own. Really important. When you go before God, and you petition the creator of the universe, and you are, you're asking whatever, right? It's whatever or anything. So there's nothing off the table, assuming you're not asking for something sinful. There's nothing off the table. Ask him. He's a big God. He can, he can discern the good from the bad. Ask him. But if you come to him and you ask upon your own merit, or your own value, or your own goodness, if you were asking him, saying, Lord, you should answer this because it's me. And, and, and well, I mean, look at me. I, I'm doing all right. I mean, I'm keeping my job. I, I'm good in my, my home, and I, I'm trying hard. You ask upon your own merit, it fails. It's dead on arrival. The merit of Jesus' name, his work upon the cross. He's the mediator. He intercedes. Now, I'll give you one more. To ask something in Jesus' name is to express in your prayer the sincere and greatest desire that the Father's name is glorified. I mean, that's at its basic level. That God the Father is glorified in whatever you're asking. And therefore, you can say, Lord, thy will be done. This is what I'm going to ask, but your will be done because I want you glorified. Look at verse 13. Jesus makes this imminently clear. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. For what reason? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Everything Jesus did glorified the Father. His whole life, every 
thought he ever had, every word he ever uttered, every action he ever engaged in brought glory and honor to the Father perfectly. And so when you're asking for something in Jesus' name, you are saying, Father, be glorified. Father, be glorified. Christ will do whatever you ask if it glorifies the Father. And he knows this because the more we know him, the more, when you pray, this came up earlier in our morning seminar, when you pray, and God the Father answers that prayer, and you see God's love or his mercy or, or maybe his justice, maybe you get a glimpse of his perfection. When he answers that, what, what's just happened? You now know God better. You know him better than before you prayed. You met, know him better than when the prayer was answered. And, and Jesus wants this because the more you know God the Father, the more you will worship Him, the more you'll glorify Him. And that's why Christ came, that we might glorify and worship the Father. Every single answered prayer enables you, the believer, to know God the Father better. You say, well, why, why should I pray? You say, well, I hope you're praying because you know God. And you want to know Him better. And if we know the Father, we know the Son. And if we know the Son, we know the Father because Jesus has made it clear that they are one. And and at this very wonderful foundation, you have the very purpose of prayer. It's not that we don't go to the Father asking whatever in His name and, and wanting things to come to pass, but that's not why we pray. In fact, I think it's one of the reasons... So few of us pray as we should. We pray to know God. We pray to see His face. We pray to hear His voice. We pray to God because in so doing, we're drawn into an intimacy and a relationship with Him. To see Him, to know Him. This, wasn't this at the heart of Philip's request? Verse 8 again, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. We'll be satisfied. We could say the same. If we know the Father, if we know the Son, if we have that real relationship that comes to the means of grace, prayer being fundamental to it, and you can say, I'm satisfied in the Lord. You know what that does to our prayer? That means that you can ask for things and never get them, and it's okay. Why? Because the very means of asking was glorious. How many of you have asked for, how many of you prayed to God for something that has yet to come to pass and you prayed for years and yet you keep praying and you should, scriptures teach to that, but don't you see the very means of the request is glorious to God, that you're drawn into this dialogue, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Packer, one last time. He said, this is what all the work of grace aims at. An ever deeper knowledge of God and an ever closer fellowship with Him. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. I love that. So many of your problems are not what you think. So many of your problems are that you don't know the Savior that loves you so much and the Father who cares for you so much that He sent Christ to die for you or the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. You just don't know Him. 
The disciples' hearts were troubled because they were striving for the wrong thing. Right? They wanted Jesus to stay because they said, you got to stay, Lord, because if you don't stay, you don't go to the throne, and we're not in the cabinet. We want to rule with you. We want the power. We want the prestige. You can't leave. They were after the wrong things. They did not see that Jesus was their end and aim. It was him. They missed it entirely. They missed God. They blew right by God. They said, well, give us the security. Give us the peace. Give us the power. And Jesus says, you have me. And if they have Jesus, if you have Jesus, you have all that already. Like the disciples, so many in the church, we fail to see this today. My beloved, our our hearts are troubled. We do not have peace because we keep going to God as a means to a different end other than himself. Right? I mean, think about it. How many people are in churches today because they think if they go to church, God will bless them in a particular way? How many of you say, I'm, I'm listening to this sermon, and it's just so long, but if I stick with it, if I just keep listening to him go on and on, then God will bless me. You've missed it. If you give of your offerings, or you bend a knee in prayer, and it's to somehow use God as your own personal cosmic genie or your own universal secretary, you've missed him. And if you miss him, if you just want him to smooth out the rough spots in life, you go to him to have him do whatever it is that you want to do, you will never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied. You will be like that poor man from India that you dropped in downtown San Jose. And you'll go through life and it'll be a, a mad business, confused. The difference between knowing God and knowing about God is eternity. You can know about God and perish. In order to live forever, you must know God. And you know God the Father through Jesus Christ His Son. You say, well, you know, I, I, wanna, I want my heart to turn. I want to know God. Some of you may be sitting here saying, I know lots about God. I've been in church most of my life. I can, I can quote Scripture. I can tell you the stories, but unless you know Jesus Christ, you don't know the Father. And if you don't know the Father, you don't have eternal life. You don't have it now, and you won't have it for eternity. You will have death instead. So let's begin this morning by saying, if you want to know God the Father, then get to know Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, you've got to know Christ. That means that if you don't know Christ, take the truths that are revealed in Scripture. Start with one and take it in and, and meditate on it and study it and contemplate it and then bring it before God in prayer and ask Him, say, Lord, show this to me. What a glorious prayer. Father, show me Yourself. Show me Your Son. You want a glorious prayer in the Lord? I'm confused. I, I don't walk the walk that I should. I don't even know that I'm saved. Go before God and ask Him in Christ's name that you might know Him. It is His will that you know Him. This will require you hearing God's Word. From the pulpit, from your Bible, in a Bible study, in your private time, it will require that you know God's Word, that you hear God's Word, that you receive it. You just take it in. Some of you will leave here and go, I have no idea what He said. The Word was preached and it wasn't received. You've got to hear it. You've got to take it in. 
It will require that you recognize at the most fundamental level that God loved you first and brought you in. He came to you and he brought you into the community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It will require that you go daily before the Lord, confess your sins, turn from your unholiness, and ask God to reveal his character and his nature to you, that you grow daily in the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It will require that in hearing these truths, you submit to them in love. Neglecting to know God, neglecting to know Jesus Christ, you'll be far worse off than that Indian man in downtown San Jose. You will have no clue how to live. Worse yet, you'll have no clue how to die. You will stumble through life, blind, deaf, lame, dead, and headed for hell. Jesus calls you this morning to an infinitely better way. No need to waste this life and forfeit your soul. There's no need for it. A Savior came to redeem us from that very existence. He's calling you this morning to know the Father through Him. He's calling you, His church, to do the greater work of the gospel and serve God the Father through Him. And He's saying to you, if you have ears to hear, He's saying, ask and it shall be given. Ask anything. In Christ's name, that is in accordance with the Father's will, not upon your own merit, but for the Father's glory, and that prayer will be answered. That's a prayer of faith, my beloved. We need to do better at that. Individually and as a church, we need to pray better, with greater faith. And here's the end of the picture for us, and then I'll close in prayer. This great, glorious end with God. We get it from Revelation 22. This is also from the Apostle John. He said, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In this place, in the presence of God, no longer will there be any accursed, anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will what? They will see His face. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. You will know God and God will know you and no sin will come between you. And then he says, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever and ever. My prayer for you this week has been simple. That you know God. That you know the real God. That you know Him through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that much of our time engaged in these religious exercises is not for you. How often, Lord, have we opened our Bibles or got down on our knees or attended a church service thinking that somehow we can manipulate you into doing something for us. 
Father, I pray that you would compel us to cease such foolish behavior. That you would enable us to see the blessing of prayer is knowing you. The blessing of prayer is seeing that you and Christ and the Holy Spirit really are one. And that by your grace and mercy, Father, you would set our feet to do this great and glorious work that surpasses the work even of Christ and the disciples on earth, and that is the gospel itself. Father, make us bold and loving in our proclamation. Send us out not afraid, but in the power of Christ to go to our neighbors and our family and our co-workers and to actually tell them about your son. Tell them that they too can know God. They can know you and they can be saved. Lord, I pray you would equip us to this end. Give us right hearts and sharp minds. We might be faithful to communicate these truths in such a way that people might hear it. I praise you for all those you've gathered here today in this church, in every gospel-centered church in the South Bay and throughout the world. I pray, Father, that you would magnify your name through the answered prayers of your children. Make yourself known, I pray, in Christ's holy name. Amen.